The Lord be with you. In just a minute, we're going to dive into this fascinating Elijah story. It's a real good one. Uh, but before we do, a, a spoiler alert. Uh, at the end of my message today, I'm going to invite you to the possibility of a practice to experiment, uh, either on a, like a weekly or a daily basis. And I'm very aware on January 12th that uh, you may have started the year with some practices, some habits, some things you want to cultivate for this year. But now it's January 12th. So I don't know what your track record is, but there might already be a level of discouragement if you're anything like me. So before we dive into this story, I thought I would sing a, just a song of encouragement about um, what happens when the Lord invites us to try new things, new practices, new habits. So I'll sing that. I buy a lot of diaries. I fill them full of good intentions. Each and every New Year's Eve, I make myself a list. All the things I'm gonna change until January 2nd. So this time I'm making one promise. Oh, this will be my resolution. Every day is New Year's Day. This could start a revolution. Every possible I believe in new beginnings cause I believe in Christmas day and Easter morning too and I'm convinced it's doable cause I believe in second chances just the way that I believe in you yeah and this will be chance to start all over one more chance to change and grow oh, one more chance to grab a hold of grace and never let it go oh. so this will be my resolution every day Every day is, 
Thank you. Okay, with that in mind, whoop, it's all good. With that in mind, <laughs> and a near disaster, uh, let us dive into this um, story with Elijah. We get to look at this strange, uh, quite strange, quite wonderful episode from the life of the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. And when uh, Jordan was reading the passage for you, I'm hoping that something in particular might have jumped out at you in the passage. Did you notice that in just a few short verses, I think he only read about four verses, uh, God asked Elijah a very specific question, not one time, but two times. Did you notice what that question was? The question was, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Now, this is a question, what are you doing here, that actually gets quite a lot of airtime in my life. Um, I very often find myself walking with purpose into a room in my house, ostensibly to retrieve something, and then I get there and I think, what are you doing here, Carolyn? <laughs> what did you come here for? Uh, it happens to me a lot in the car. I'm a bit of a, a daydreamer and I'm kind of famous. We live in Fraser Heights. I'm kind of famous for just trying to get to Guilford Mall, missing my exit, finding myself on the Portman Bridge and saying to myself, what are you doing here, Carolyn? Uh, I've even been known to ask this question more philosophically than geographically uh, at the door of my pantry, sort of mindlessly out of boredom, reaching for a bag of chips and suddenly thinking, what are you doing here, <laughs> Carolyn? It's a question that we could ask ourselves this morning. Lisa's prayer reminded us we're, here we are at the start of a new year, actually a new year, a new decade. But here we are as fires burn in Australia, as tensions continue to flare in Iran, as poverty persists in Surrey. What are we doing here? Why are we here? At PCC this morning, listening to a message, worshiping together, what are we hoping for? What drew us here? What do we need? How did we get here, this group of us in this room? What are we doing here? What led us to be here, right here, right now? It's a really good question, and as we've noticed, it's a question that God asks Elijah twice in that famous cave exchange in 1 Kings 19. Now, I'm sure you know the backstory, but it never hurts uh, to review. Remember, it's been Elijah's uh, job as a prophet to confront idolatry in Israel. Israel's king, King Ahab, and his wife, Queen Jezebel, have been turning their backs on Yahweh and promoting worship of the false god Baal, a Canaanite reign and fertility god. And now things have come to a head when God instructs Elijah to conduct a kind of showdown on top of a place called Mount Carmel. There two bulls are sacrificed. One is laid on an altar to Baal, and one is laid on an altar to Yahweh. And in Baal's corner, there are 450 prophets of Baal. And in Elijah's corner, there is Elijah. <laughs> So it's 450 to one. 
in this showdown. And with the people of Israel gathered as spectators, Elijah proposes that each side pray and ask God to send down fire to light the altar. Whichever God responds with fire to cook up the bowl on the altar will be shown to be the true God. And the people of Israel, they like this. There's some intrigue here. This is a cool showdown. And they say, yes, this is a reasonable proposal. Whichever God sends down the fire, that is the true fire. So Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, after you. And he tells them they can go first. And they start praying to Baal early in the morning, all 450 of them. And there is much shouting and there is much dancing, but there is no response. And around noon, Elijah gets like a little salty and he starts to give them some trash talk. Let me read you some of that from uh, verse 27 in 1 Kings chapter 18. Shout louder, Elijah said. Surely he is God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. And uh, those of you who know Hebrew well know that with this perhaps he is busy phrase, this is actually a euphemism that maybe Baal is in the washroom, right? So he's definitely giving them some trash talk. Maybe he's sleeping and he must be awakened. So all afternoon, this makes the prophets of Baal try harder, and all afternoon they keep at it, begging Baal to show himself. The prophets even cut themselves with swords and spears until blood is flowing, which is apparently, for some reason, their very icky custom. But nothing happens. So finally, it's Elijah's turn to call on Yahweh, and he doesn't do dancing, and he doesn't do shouting, and he doesn't cut himself uh, with swords. But he does put on a bit of a show, you got to like Elijah for this. You know, have you ever seen one of those escape artists? And before they do their big escape, they do this kind of series of things to make the escape even harder. So they'll say, okay, first put me in a straitjacket, and then put on chains, and then put on handcuffs. Well, Elijah uses this kind of strategy to heighten the, the drama because he says, okay, pour just tons of water on the altar. That's going to make... Yahweh sending down fire even harder, and then do it again, and then do it a third time. He's really heightening the, the drama. So now the, the altar to Yahweh is completely drenched in water. He wants to make sure the odds are stacked against him so that if it happens, it's really a miracle. And then in verse 36, here we are still in chapter 18. In verse 36, Elijah prays a simple prayer. Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Isn't that a beautiful part of the prayer? That you are turning their hearts back again. And before Elijah can even say amen, Bam! The fire of the Lord comes down and it burns up the bull and the wood and the stones and the soil and it even laps up all the water. And the people of Israel, I mean, it's undeniable. The people of Israel, they fall down and they confess that Yahweh is the one true God. So Elijah has just enjoyed the sweetest possible victory. The name Elijah actually means Yahweh is my God, and Yahweh has just been shown to be alive and well without a shadow of a doubt, and it just, I mean, really, it just could not have gone better. You couldn't have scripted it better. 
But here's the thing. Have you noticed in your own life that uh, a big high, especially a spiritual high, is often followed by a big crash? Just seems to be part of the nature of life. And that's what happens with Elijah. He's hardly done a victory lap when he finds out that Queen Jezebel is quite annoyed with the way that she's embarrassed him and she is plotting his murder and she's sending out every available troop to find him and kill him. And now Elijah realizes with great discouragement that this battle that he thought that he had won is in some ways just beginning. So his celebration is cut short and he plunges into a physical crash. He's exhausted and an emotional crash. He's depressed. That's just as recent as his, or just as spectacular as his recent triumph. So he decides what he's going to do is he's going to run for his life to the south in the general direction of Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is also known as Mount Sinai. This is the famous mountain where Moses had encountered God about 600 years earlier. And on his way to Horeb, Elijah realizes more and more that he's spiritually and emotionally and physically exhausted, and he sinks into despair so that by chapter 19, verse 4, he's found a broom tree, he's sitting under it, and he's moaning, I've had enough, Lord, take my life. It's only like a day or two after this huge victory. But the Lord doesn't take his life. The Lord preserves his life instead, sending an angel with Uh, In the NRSV, it says the angel brings cake, which is maybe my favorite detail in this story. (laughs) I love that. The angel brings uh, cake. It just seems very tender and loving for the angel to bring cake. Earlier, you might remember in Elijah's story, there was a time when the ravens brought bread and water every day to sustain him, and that was good enough. But here, when he's really crashed, the angel brings cake. I think there's something important we need to notice here, and it's probably time for Jim to make more Black Forest cake. Um, so the angel brings cake, but still, despite that quite tender care from the Lord, Elijah's mood does not improve. But he's strong enough to get up and have a 40-day journey, and he reaches Mount Horeb, and there he finds a cave just kind of nestled into the side of Mount Horeb, and he hunkers down in there, and he sulks. He has found an exterior cave to match his inner psychological cave, an environment that suits how he's feeling. And it's in his first night in this cave, sulking, that the Lord asks him the question that we read in verse nine, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah is more than happy to answer the Lord. He answers accusingly, explaining that his zeal for the Lord has gotten him nothing but isolation and trouble. And in response, the Lord tells him to go stand outside. And Elijah obliges. And then he gets to witness Yahweh at the height of his poetic powers. And you know how this goes. First, there is a gale force wind, but the Lord is not in the wind. And then there is a major earthquake, but the Lord is not in the earthquake. And then there's a five alarm fire. And then you cannot blame Elijah for thinking, okay, the Lord is going to be in the fire. Because remember, he was just 40 days earlier. He was just in the fire at Mount Carmel. So it's reasonable to expect that the Lord would be in the fire but the Lord's not in the fire. And then finally, there is a gentle whisper, a still, small voice. The Hebrew here describes the whisper as the voice of gentle silence, as if the silence had become audible. Have you ever experienced an audible silence? Like maybe on Remembrance Day when we 
when we all hold a minute together in silence and it's got this weight, it's like an audible silence. And in that audible silence, Elijah recognizes God. And at last he's ready to have a conversation with the Lord and that's when the Lord says again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah actually gives him the exact same answer as he did before all that. But here's the thing, have you ever noticed that after an encounter with God, sometimes everything can look exactly the same, but everything is completely different? <laughs> I think that's what's going on with Elijah here because it's after, it's post-whisper that Elijah and God can go a little farther with the conversation and God goes right into some next steps for Elijah. He's able to tell Elijah, okay, here's what you're gonna do next. Here's how you're getting out of this cave. And here's the next stuff I'm inviting you to do. This is a great and mysterious and wonderful story. They say that the scholars of the ancient Near East say that it was very common to describe theophanies, places where gods would reveal themselves in things like fire and wind and thunder. But this God being in the whisperer thing, this is new and unprecedented, unprecedented for all of the ancient Near East and for the people of of Israel. It's a, it's a new thing, a new discovery, how God can be heard. So there's like a zillion things that we could notice in this story, but this morning I just want us to notice uh, two. And the first one is this, and it's obvious, but it's worth reminding ourselves. God can and will speak in many different ways. Remember at the showdown on Mount Carmel, Elijah sees that God can speak through the spectacular through the, you know, really a great show, fire and thunder and wind and rain. And so when Elijah reaches Mount Horeb, you can hardly blame him for thinking that God is going to speak to him in the same kind of mode again. And in fact, he's got in the back of his mind that that's how Moses encountered God on Mount Horeb, in the thunder with smoke and kind of a light show. And, you know, so it's understandable that he would expect to encounter God in the spectacular. But this time at Horeb, God doesn't speak in the spectacular, but in silence. And this is a lesson for Elijah and for us that we should not expect to hear from God in only one way. I have this tendency, once I have encountered God in a certain way, whether that's through a particular worship style or a way of praying or maybe even a particular song, whatever it is, I have a tendency to then think, okay, that's my go-to. That's the only way that God can speak to me. And then I become close to other worship styles or other ways of praying or other ways God might want to speak to me. The author, Margaret Gunther, says we have a tendency to let our icons, by an icon she means anything through which we see God. So it could be uh, what we traditionally think of an icon, like an image, but it could also be the way we worship, the way we come together, the way we encounter God in the world. We have a tendency to let our icons fossilize into idols. Idols are different than icons because an icon, through an icon, you see God, but an idol is hardened over and now you only see the, the idol. She warns us not to let our icons uh, fossilize in, into idols. And if I'm being honest, I particularly need this word right now, two weeks after Pastor Brian's retirement, because I could hear, I think it was this way for you too, those of you who come here often, I could hear God speaking so clearly in Pastor Brian's preaching. 
and it's hard to imagine whenever the next lead pastor comes being able to hear God as clearly. But this story reminds me, oh, God is speaking and he will continue to speak and I mustn't let my icons fossilize into idols. We got to remember that God refuses to be reduced to a formula or to be manipulated or objectified or to be limited to one way of encounter. He's endlessly creative, and we might be able to say that he's not only omnipresent, but he's also omnilinguistic. He can speak through anything, and often in ways we don't expect. When, when I was growing up, when we went to church on a Sunday morning, we thought that the sermon was really the time when God would speak. And we, sure, we sang a few songs together, but that was kind of to soften us up, right? To warm us up for the way that God was going to uh, speak during the message, during the sermon. But of course we were wrong. God was speaking us to the sermon, through the sermon for sure. When we open God's word, that is a powerful way to hear God speak. But he was also speaking to us before that, through our singing, through what was happening in our bodies and our vocal cords and in the heavenlies as all creation worship with us. He was speaking to us in the, in the bread and the juice that we had together. And before that, he was speaking, before we even got to church, he was speaking to us through the leaves that fell on us from the trees in the parking lot as we made our way to the service. And before that, he was speaking to us as we brushed our teeth at home and groggedly looked out at the rising sun. And before that, he might have even been speaking to us in our dreams as we slept. But we missed so much of what he was saying to us because we were only listening for God to speak to us in one particular way. And we needed ears to hear all the ways that he might speak to us. In just the short portion of Elijah's story, we see that God does speak in the spectacular. So sometimes there may be something in your life where it's just unmistakable and there's tons of fireworks and you say, surely the Lord has been in this place. He does speak that way. He speaks to us in scriptures always. Remember, in Elijah's life, it's the story of Moses, eventually captured in the Hebrew scriptures, that helps him know he should head towards Mount Horeb. We see that God speaks to us in nature, because we see in Elijah, God speaking to, to Elijah in caves and in mountains, and earlier in Elijah's story, through birds and babbling brooks, even broom trees. And we see in Elijah's story that God speaks to us through other people. One of, the, one of the little details in this story I really love is that post-whisper, when God is finally able to give Elijah some directions, he tells him, I want you to go find a guy named Elisha and commission him to be your successor. And a lot of people read that and they kind of see it as God's uh, judgment on Elijah. Like, Elijah, you kind of blew it here, so it's time for you to go and, and look for a successor. But I don't think that's really it, because Elijah and Elisha will be really good friends for a long time. In fact, at first it says Elisha becomes Elijah's servant. So they're going to be really good friends for a long time before the time comes for Elijah to be taken up into heaven and Elisha to continue on. So I think we see actually here God providing for Elijah not only cake and bread and water, but a friend, a spiritual friend. And God very often speaks to us through spiritual friendships. And of course, what is particularly striking in this story is that God speaks to us in the whisper, in the still small voice, in the audible silence, if we will be still and listen, which is why in our 
incredibly noisy Western culture, we have to create space for silence. Silence in our environment and silence in our own heads and minds. Just time when we're just silent to see how God might speak. So just in one, this one story, we see that God speaks to us through the spectacular, through scriptures, through nature, through other people, spiritual friendships, through silence. And then we also see in the story that God speaks to us through our own hearts, through what's going on inside of us, through our longings and our discouragements and our joys and our despair. When God asks Elijah, what are you doing here? God is asking Elijah to listen to his own life. And that leads us to the second thing I'm hoping we can notice this morning. That what is really striking in this story is that God, the God of the universe, who is holding every atom in place, who in whom and through him all things have their being, that God, the God who made everything, he actually cares about what's going on inside of you. He actually cares deeply. He's deeply invested in the inner journey of every human being. Otherwise, why would God ask Elijah that question? What are you doing here? He's omniscient. He knows, of course, the exact sequence of events that brought Elijah to his literal cave. And he also knows the precise progression of thoughts. Elijah's, I think Elijah had kind of a downward spiral of self-importance and self-loathing that landed him in that psychological cave. God knows all that. So the repeated question has to be more for Elijah's benefit than for the Lord's. And God is asking Elijah to pay attention to his own inner journey, but not in some draining act of isolated introspection, of navel-gazing, going deeper, deeper into yourself till you're hopelessly lost, but in conversation with God himself. He's asking Elijah to take an honest look at where he's at and an honest look at how he got there, all in the healing light of God's love. We see God actually doing this kind of soul work with people all throughout the scriptures. When Adam and Eve believe the first lie and they find themselves naked and ashamed and hiding, what does God say? Where are you? God knows where they are, but he's doing this kind of soul work. In the New Testament, when God comes to us in the form of Jesus, we see Jesus asking these kinds of soul work questions all the time. We're going to work with a question from Jesus next week. What are you looking for? What do you want? Do you want to be made well? Why did you doubt? Why are you afraid? And I used to read some of those questions as accusations, like, you know, what did you do? That sort of thing that we say to our dog to make him skulk away with shame. But I, I think I had that all wrong. I think God might ask a question of us like, why did you doubt? The same way those of us who have kids might ask one of our kids, what are you afraid of when they wake up at night? The questions are invitations to look lovingly together what it, at what is going on inside, to talk it out with the Lord in the light of his love. I have a friend named Trevor who says, so often when we tell God things about what's going on inside of us, it has nothing to do with giving God information. God has that information. It has everything to do with giving God access to opening up what's going on inside of us so that God can heal and bring it all out into the light of his uh, love. So this question that God asks Elijah, what are you doing here? 
It's a question that has the power to awaken me and disrupt me. It forces me to stop, to get out of autopilot, to take notice of where I am and to assess whether I'm where I want to be, where I should be, where I'm heading somewhere I want to be. It invites me to retrace, if necessary, the steps that led me to my current location and to explore the path I might take to go somewhere else. I want to ask you, where might God be asking you this question? What are you doing here? Maybe you're in a cave of perpetual fear about your life. They say we're the most anxious culture in history. Maybe you're in this cave of perpetual fear about your life, your finances, your health. Do not be surprised if you'll listen a little bit if God doesn't come to you in one of these ways, in silence, in a friend, in scripture, in the spectacular, but God might come to you in one of these ways and say, what are you doing here? Inviting you to look at the thought patterns and the reflexes that have made fear such a dominant note in the song of your life. Or maybe your cave is like a particular anger or a resentment or an old wound, a serious wound that you keep crawling back into. Maybe it's a sore spot in your marriage or in your family or at your work. Don't be surprised if God comes to you and lovingly asks, what are you doing here? Inviting you to sit with him and to begin to untangle the hurt and the pride and the wounds that got you where you are and start to figure out some ways forward. So, if you were here last week, you heard Pastor Jim's wonderful sermon in which he shared a series of really helpful insights from his life as a paddler. And he told a story I loved about being on a paddling team with a bunch of guys, being in a boat being pretty close to the finish line and being overtaken by another boat filled with 60-something women. I love this story. Uh, yes, amen. And, uh, and he said something really important as he was sharing that, that story. He said, practice beats strength. Practice beats strength. Another way I've heard this say, John, John Ortberg says, habits eat willpower for breakfast. <laughs> So if we want to get better at hearing God when he says, what are you doing here? When he invites us to give him access to what's going on inside of us so that he can bring it out into the light of his love and heal us, help us move forward, help us to become people who radiate his love in the world. If we want to get better at that, it's a bad idea to just try to gut it out or just say, I'm going to try harder to be the sort of person who God says that. I think instead, we can look at a potential practice. And for me, that practice has become about 15 minutes a day, when I remember to do it, about 15 minutes a day to invest in a prayer of reflection that in classic Christianity has been called the prayer of examine. Now, for me, it helps to light a candle. I know that's very woo-woo, but it helps me remember that something very holy is about to happen. And I take out a journal, and then I sit in the sort of stillness that can make the silence audible. And the Lord and I converse, and we review just the last 24 hours together. That's what works best for me, to do it about every 24 hours. We look at the day that has passed, and we notice the actions and thoughts and postures that have brought me closer to the Lord and the ones that have pulled me further away. Now, if you're interested, this is my invitation to you to try this for the next week. Once a day, review the last 24 hours with the Lord. And depending on your temperament, what might work great is just to go for a walk or a paddle or 
do it just before, just as you're lying in bed at, at night. Uh, it can be super loose and casual, or if you're like me and you like you need some structure and you need a process, you can follow a more a more formal process. Maybe we can put one up here on the screen. This is from a book called The Examine Prayer by Timothy Gallagher, and he suggests the, these little steps. The first one is transition. I become aware of the love with which God looks upon me as I begin this examine. Some days, I light my candle in my office. I try to do this sort of midday, and I can't actually get past that first step because it becomes so powerful for me to just sit and notice the love with which God looks upon me. But if I can get past the first step, then uh, I offer gratitude for the gifts that God has given me that day. Then I pray a petition that the Lord will make the time fruitful, that I'll only see what he wants me to see, that I won't be overwhelmed by all the places where I missed him, that something good will happen, that I'll hear from him. And then review, I go over the last 24 hours and I pay attention to the things that move me more in his direction and the things that move me somewhere unhealthy. And then forgiveness, when I see things that were clearly shutting him off and shutting myself off from his love, I ask him to forgive me. Renewal, we work on a plan together for the next 24 hours, and then just an amen with thankfulness. Some of you, this will totally work. Others of you, you don't need steps. You just need to talk to the Lord in a specific way once a day about the last 24 hours. But the invitation is there. And if you get for, forget for a few days, every day is New Year's Day. Just start again. That's an invitation. Because I think the Lord is asking each one of us, even now, what are you doing here? And the question is, do you recognize his voice? Do you hear the love in it? I think he's offering to transform all of our disorientation and all of our restlessness into invitation. May we have the courage to listen to his voice, however he chooses to speak, and the courage to accept his invitation. Amen. So to close here, uh, before we come to the table, I'm going to sing a song over us, a song that I wrote to the Lord when I found myself in a particular cave of fear and doubt. We'll put the words up as I sing in case you'd like to reflect upon them. And uh, I just want to invite you to just turn your heart to the Lord's and see what he might be saying to you even now. Well, I was hoping you would write to me a message in the stars. As if the stars themselves were not enough And I awaited your arrival here From someplace very far As if I couldn't feel your constant touch well, Why did I think that you'd send thunder to wake me from my slumber when any time I open up my eyes there you are loving me like crazy there you are though I 
was wishing for a miracle, waiting for a sign. As if each breath I take is not a gift, and I was acting just as if the way you gave your life for mine didn't have my foolish heart convinced. What did I think could cause this hunger? Did I ever stop to wonder why every time I open up my eyes, there you are, loving me like crazy. There you are, though I am unaware. There you. If the stars themselves